Okay. Well, hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, Danielle E. Gaines, senior reporter for the Frederick News Post. How are you? Hi, Colin. I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm tired. It's cold. It's April and it's cold. How's the weather in Annapolis? It's also chilly here. After a, a pretty lovely day yesterday, despite the storms. I like storms. <laughs> They're very interesting to hear in the state house. I'll tell you that much because the uh-huh. in the house in the Senate chamber, the ceilings are glass. So frankly, I'm always a little bit terrified that, you know, it's just going to be the end of days when it's storming and I'm in there. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like that would be scary. Yeah, it's also nice, though. On on sunny days, it's beautiful. Oh, well, that's good. Okay. Okay, so we have, this is the final full week. Everybody who's been with yes. us all this time, yeah, we finally culminate with this, the final week. We're going to do one more episode. Hopefully, that will be in person next week. That's my vote. We'll see, though. You're going to have to tune in. Uh, so, the final week. A lot of stuff going down. Um, first bills become law in two th- 2017, including capital budget with downtown hotel project funding. This is a big story from you, uh, posted only 10 hours ago as of this recording. <laughs> uh, I think the latest version was posted only 10 hours ago. We had it a little earlier than that. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, okay, okay. I work quickly, Colin. <laughs> um... <laughs> Governor Larry Hogan signed 11 measures, including one addressing metro safety oversight and a statewide fracking ban over the past week. I'm going to say that and then I'm going to shut up. What might you have to say? Well, sure. So we were waiting, um, you know, for several days uh, to see what the governor would do with these early filed bills. So there's this... um, provision in the Maryland state constitution that says when um, bills are passed by both chambers and presented to the governor, he, during session, he has six days, excluding the day in which they were presented and excluding Sundays to make a final decision on them. So um, those decisions can be signing the bills, vetoing the bills, or allowing them to pass into law without his signature. So we had a couple of bill signings. I think there were four, actually, um, three that the public were invited to. And so we saw some of those measures get signed and go into effect that way. Um, the fracking ban was one of those. The metro safety measure that you mentioned is one of those. And then um, the governor held a press conference on Thursday detailing the one bill that he did veto. Um, And, or he held that press conference on Wednesday, I'm sorry, because then on Thursday, um, that that veto was actually overridden in both chambers of the House and the Senate um, right away. So uh, we Uh had one vetoed piece of legislation. Uh, several that were signed, and um, I think 15 others that took effect without the governor's signature. What was vetoed? Uh, What was vetoed was a bill called the Protect Our Schools Act, and it's essentially a bill that outlines um, how failing schools should be dealt with according to Maryland law. Um, It basically deals with whether or not failing schools would become charter schools or not. And, um, you know, the governor and the General Assembly members have very different views of that legislation. Um, 
a lot of people say they want public money to go to public education and uh, several Republican members who supported the governor in his veto um, said instead of being called the Protect Our Schools Act, it should be called the Protect Our Failing Schools Act because it just allows um, schools that aren't getting the passage rates that you would hope to see um, to continue operating in the same school districts and under the same rules. I also see in your story, too, there was uh, some tie to Planned Parenthood. There is a bill that was passed that um, essentially says that the state will put forward some of its own health budget to um, compensate uh, Planned Parenthood centers in the state of Maryland um, for providing patient services if uh, the federal government pulls their funding. And Maryland is, I believe, the first state in the country to do that this year. Um, Obviously, this is something that has come up under the um, presidency of Donald Trump and a a very real um, possibility that that Title IX funding could be pulled for women's health clinics. And... um, Mm -hmm. The General Assembly is the first of more than one state who are considering taking action like this. So with the the hotel stuff, um, I I have to ask you, you know, I, I, where do we stand with the hotel and the funding now? Because that that, you know, that was in the headline to the story. Is everything clear? How, how does it look? Well, that depends on who you ask, uh, as with so much Aha. relating well, to the Well, I'm downtown. asking <laughs> you, Danielle. I'm asking you. Well, I'll tell you what both sides say. Um, uh, supporters of the project are certainly happy that the funding is through. It's part of the state capital budget. Um, a lot of the debate this year about whether or not to include this uh, funding in the budget centered around um, economic development, the vibrancy of the city of Frederick, the fact that Frederick is, you know, um, an economic center in the state and, you know, not just some like far flung Western Maryland city. Um, so certainly proponents of the project liked um, the discussion that that the way that discussion took place. Um, uh, Opponents of the project still feel very strongly that this is an improper government subsidy for private business and um, still don't want to see it go through. So the money's there. It's appropriated. Um, You know, there's still a process when you get these types of capital grants to have them released through the Maryland Board of Public Works. Uh, The Maryland Board of Public Works is the governor, the comptroller, and the treasurer. And um, it's it's an interesting place. It would be really interesting to see whether or not there does end up being a fight at that level to have the funds released. You think there might be a fight? There could be. I mean, there's been some Frederick um, issues that have come up at the Board of Public Works in the past. So um, the wild car- the wild card on the Board of Public Works is uh, Comptroller Peter Francho, who is a Democrat and who, um, you know, feels very strongly about many Democratic principles. Uh, but he is a bit of a fiscal hawk and him and the governor often see eye to eye on um, issues relating to state finances and, and being a little bit more prudent. Well, then, okay. Uh, I'm assuming we will not know much more about this for a little bit now. We'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, the city will, uh, I believe the, the money would flow from the, from the state to the city. So it would be the city who would have to uh, make that application to have those funds released. And we'll just have to wait and see when they do that. Okay. 
Okay, you mentioned the governor not too long ago, of course. It's impossible to have this podcast without mentioning the governor. Duh. Of course. Um, and he withdrew uh, as health secretary nominee, Dennis Schrader. Uh, or, I mean, uh, yeah, Secretary yes, of yeah. Health and Mental Hygiene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is kind of an interesting move that I wanted to hear you explain a little bit uh, because this, uh, of course, you have a quote from Senator Bill Ferguson that this is unprecedented um, and there's some concerns surrounding this. If you could explain that in layman's terms, that would be good. Sure. So unprecedented, unprecedented. That's like the word for, I guess, 2016 and now 2017. But, um, you know, this first came up, obviously it came to our attention when it was relating to um, Maryland's planning secretary, Wendy Peters, who has Frederick ties. And Mm -hmm. um, in her case, uh, there also was a big floor discussion about her appointment. She was appointed by the governor. The Senate Executive uh, Nominations Committee voted unfavorably towards her approval. And um, in response, the governor withdrew her name from consideration for that position. And then senators later learned that she actually stayed in the job. So there was a lot of concern about that. Um, In her case, you know, there was a possibility that she was there was a likelihood, I would say, that she was going to get a negative vote on the Senate floor. Um, in Dennis Schrader's uh, case, it's very interesting. He has not had a vote by the Senate Executive Nominations Committee yet this session. Um, uh-huh. The uh, Senate President, Mike Miller, he said that he thought that Schrader would get a positive uh, vote out of that committee, a favorable vote. But um, the governor's office just said, look, we're like towards the end of session. They said it was unprecedented that uh, a cabinet secretary would not be nominated, uh, who was nominated, would not be uh, given approval, confirmation by this point in session. So they said instead of allowing politics to get in the middle of all of it, they were just going to keep him in uh, his in his job and they were going to resubmit him next year. Um, That certainly added a lot of politics to the situation. Um, because that's really what, what kind of set off a whole new round of concerns. Um, this is a situation where, you know, the governor's office has put forward a candidate for confirmation by the Senate, withdrawn the candidate before the Senate, uh, can vote and plans to, you know, introduce the candidate again at a later date. That's kind of, um, Senator Ferguson said the equivalent of Donald Trump just putting Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court bench without you know, even trying to go through the process. So I was just going to say that. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so that that that's the feeling, you know, the governor's side uh, really feels that they have not gotten a fair shake so far as their nominees go this time around. Um, the senators uh, feel that the process that's established in the Maryland Constitution is not being respected. Uh, the governor felt, quote, the governor felt that this was too important of a position to leave at the mercy of political whims and decided to withdraw him and reappoint him to the position and hope that cooler heads will prevail. That was a quote that you had in the story. Uh, I am wondering. And and in in response, that's the response that I got into a whole uh, to a whole series of kind of varied and nuanced questions about this process was just that um, they didn't want this candidate twisting in the political winds. And so they withdrew him. Mm hmm. So the the follow up, the question that I have regarding that quote is, will cooler heads prevail? Does it look like um, 
like everybody's going to be okay with this or is this going to be a long drawn out fight? It's, it's really unclear at this point. Um, it, it, there's, uh, perhaps I'm not sure there's still, you know, a couple of days left in session. I don't know if there's going to be an attempt to do something to address that at this point in time. Um, I don't know. We asked various sides if they have gotten legal advice on this, if there might be a challenge in the courts um, Mm -hmm. to this process. And everybody's kind of not really willing to talk about lawyers just yet. So, um, it's another game of, of wait and see. Certainly, everybody believes that Maryland should have a health secretary. Yeah, well, yeah, we need a health secretary. <laughs> and <I think>. and <laughs> just a fun aside, um, you know, the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene—that's a very like old-timey uh, name. And so, I think it was uh, perhaps just today. It was just recently that um, both chambers passed a bill that renames that. Uh, department to just be simply the Maryland Department of Health. Ah, I so. need to do a lot of work on my mental hygiene. That <laughs> is for sure. Uh, Frederick County, uh, I want to move off of that now and get to something that is actually a little more immediate that, that you can kind of update us on to the second late yes. breaking news here, uh, which which deals with the Brewers bill within the brouhaha, which is something we've been talking about the last few weeks. I will never let you live down brouhaha because I love that. So well, much. I'm proud of it. So that's uh, fine. <laughs> yes, that's that's good. Unlike my Bill Green joke, which nobody seems to enjoy. So where are we now with the Brewers bill? Uh, what yes. happened today? Well, there were very significant developments on this um, overnight last night into this morning and into this at this afternoon now. So um, there was a bill that changes the rules for breweries. It was passed out of the Maryland House of Delegates. We've talked about this. It, you know, increased the amount of barrels that brewers can sell, but it had a couple of other issues that caused uh, grave concern among the industry. So it, uh, as it passed out of the House of Delegates, it would have severely contracted operating hours for brewery tap rooms in the state. And Mm -hmm. it would have... um, Uh, It would have um, essentially written into state law that contract brewing was not allowed. Um, Contract brewing is the process of having your own recipe made someplace else just because you lack the capacity, um, because business is booming, perhaps. So Mm -hmm. um, a lot of weird and nuanced problems with the contract brewing thing. It's allowed in one part of the law. In the way this bill was written, it wouldn't have been allowed. Um, So... Last night, there was a meeting of the Senate Environment, um, Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee, and they discussed at length uh, amendments to this bill. And these were amendments that were agreed to by representatives from all tiers of Maryland's three-tier distribution system. So you had uh, the brewers, the manufacturers, um, wholesalers, and retailers. And the whole debate here is whether or not uh, brewery tap rooms should be allowed to operate essentially as taverns. Does that take away from another part of Maryland's economy? So um, they struck a compromise. Uh, they were very, very close last night. And there were like a lot of thumbs up and thumbs downs and like oh. hand motions across the committee room. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, me and one other reporter there just trying to f- to watch it and see what was happening. So there was a point in time where I was looking towards the committee and then she was looking towards the people in the back of the room and we were just communicating with one another 
what hand motions were being made. <laughs> so <laughs> it's I like thought, a puppet show. <laughs> yes. So Shout I thought out. we might have got there last night. We did not. Instead, they came back in early this morning and a compromise uh, bill was voted out of committee. It went to the Senate floor. Uh, it got passed on second reading on the Senate floor. And then the rules were suspended to allow it to also be passed on third reading on the Senate floor. So um, it's back over to the House of Delegates and the House of Delegates now will decide whether or not they want to accept the Senate amendments or um, whether or not they uh, want to appoint essentially a group of negotiators to come back with another compromise version of the compromise bill. Compromising the compromise. Yes. Uh, with the compromises then, this would have to get this would all have to be set in motion soon, right? Yeah, and there's plenty of time, um, especially with the with the move to get it out of committee and all the way through the Senate today. Um, there's, frankly, more than enough time the way things move so quickly in the last couple of days here. So the Senate is out for the day, and actually the House is out for the day now, too. Um, but the House is coming What are you doing in. then? <laughs> <laughs> Writing all these stories. Um, so the House is actually coming in tomorrow. I would not be surprised if they try to... I, I, I think they'll probably try to take this up tomorrow. Um, that leaves uh, Monday in the event that there is a conference committee appointed. Um, so Does the the compromise bill does uh, like a few things. Um, it really it keeps the barrel count the way that it was. So it's two thousand. Um, it's essentially two thousand. And then if you want to sell even more than that, you can apply to have another one thousand. But you have to buy those from a wholesaler. Um, so brewers aren't exactly in love with that. That means they have to take their um, that means they have to take their uh, beer, sell it to somebody, and then buy it back at a markup. But um, that's in there. Um, and then uh, it also has a grandfathering clause that allows existing breweries to keep the hours that are currently allowed under their county law. Um, and it just mm -hmm. applies the scaled back hours to new breweries that would open up. So those new breweries would be subject to a 10 a.m., 10 p.m. daily closing. Does everybody have the feeling that the compromise is a true compromise? Like, do, do you get uh, the feeling that everybody's happy about it? Well, I don't know that everybody's happy. I missed one major thing. I'm sorry. On the on the compromise bill is that it it does say that contract brewing is allowed, which is important to a lot of brewers. Um, I don't think everybody is necessarily happy with the compromise version of the bill. But what's very clear is that, you know, the Brewers Association, the wholesalers, the retailers, lawmakers who really wanted to see something passed all came together. And um, I think there were concessions made on all sides in order to get this through. Um, the other thing that this bill allows is that it allows, it, it paves the way for uh, Diageo, the parent company of Guinness, to open up yeah. a, a very large brewery in Baltimore County. And um, some of the last minute concerns that they faced were also addressed. Um, it, it will allow them to uh, pour um, pints of Guinness stout um, imported. Uh, at the brewery, which is um, kind of one of the concerns. If you have to, you know, pour things that are contract brewed or brewed entirely on your own premises, um, that would leave stout out of that equation. But there's a special uh, exception in there that allows somebody to import um, up to 1.2% of their total 
Maryland-based production of another beer produced by the same company and serve it at their tap room. So in the case of Diageo, they plan to brew about a million barrels um, of this Guinness blonde ale or blonde lager um, in Maryland. So they would be able to import about 1,200 barrels of stout to serve here if they wished to. Wow, there's so many rules. There's so, so many, many rules. rules. And all numbers, so too. All <laughs> numbers and rules. It's, it's oh, I'm buried in a bunch of rules and numbers. So we're going to talk about that on our wrap-up, I would assume. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and here's a question for you. This is a good one. What's going on with the Trust Act? That was my Jerry Seinfeld impression. <laughs> Good job. Uh, well, the Senate just broke for the day a little while ago. I think they're having a barbecue right now, and then the committees Whoa. are going to meet. So um, I'm hoping that they're just you know barbecuing it up while I'm talking to you, and then I'm headed over there <laughs> to see what developments are being made on the Trust Act. There was a really, really interesting voting session that I sat through earlier this week with a few other reporters um, where... <sighs> people were just deadlocked on certain aspects of this trust act bill. And the other thing that came up is just that this, there are certain bill numbers that just become um, like, you're like a hero or a villain just based on your bill number each general assembly session. So um, they were saying that, that this bill number, this bill is, uh, just really tainted and you're not going to even if you come out with like the most amazing compromise version of a piece of this piece of legislation people aren't going to vote for it because they already feel very very strongly against it in some cases um mm -hmm. so what is the potential of what could happen is that some of the um some of the aspects of the trust act might be carved up and put on as amendments to other bills, but certainly kind of the omnibus ah. bill that we discussed earlier this session. Um, yes. May or may not pass. I also heard like just a couple of minutes ago that there might actually be a compromised version of the bill. So um, I'm going to head over and figure that out. I might have a story in tomorrow's newspaper. If they do something, uh -huh. I'll definitely have a story in tomorrow's newspaper. Okay. Read it, <laughs> people. The Frederick News Post. FrederickNewsPost.com. Com. Uh, and speaking of the FrederickNewsPost.com, the best thing in the paper from week to week, and this is going to be the last time we're going to be able to talk about this, right, Danielle? I think this is going to be yeah, the last maybe. time. Maybe. We sad. might keep this Politi FN politics stream. We might keep it going after session. We'll that see. Would, that would be great. Just you and We've me? We've got elections coming up. You know, we could, we could do something. This will be good. Well, this will be great. I think people at this point, they all want to hear us, right? They all want of to hear course. us. Yeah. No. Uh, political notes is the most readable thing in the Frederick News Post. It comes out Fridays. And today we talked about stuff, or you, I shouldn't say we, you, you, of course, write this column and you wrote about, for instance, a House resolution in 1939 calling for limitations on the federal taxing power. Yes. Um, I went a little wonky this week. Forgive me. <laughs> you <laughs> no, please explain. Please, please let the people know. <laughs> so uh, there was a resolution this year, which basically undoes any other resolution that was ever passed that calls for a constitutional <laughs> convention. 
Um, and it, it received final passage this week. And this is, it's very interesting because Maryland is among a, tr- a trend of states passing resolutions dealing with constitutional conventions. It's just that it's, it's like a, it's a grinding type situation where like one state will vote to get rid of all of their constitutional convention amendments. And then another state will vote to have a constitutional convention amendment. So, um, basically, a constitutional convention amendment calls for a constitutional convention. Um, you, <laughs> <laughs> you can amend the Constitution in two ways. You can do it through Congress, um, and then you know you can also do it through uh, this convention of the states. And so you would need uh, 34 states, I believe. I'm trying to look th- look at my story really quick. Yeah, 34 yeah, yeah, states. Yeah. 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 So you yeah. need 34 states to call a constitutional convention. And then whatever comes out of it has to be ratified by 38 states. And so mm-hmm. um, there is this idea that um, a constitutional convention could just become uh, a complete runaway body that could you know, fundamentally change American democracy for the better or for the worse, depending on how you feel about it. Um, <laughs> there has only been one constitutional convention in our yes, country's seven, history. <laughs> 1787, right? Yes. And I, that was a runaway convention. So uh, that's the precedent that we have. Um, and what do you think they were saying on the pod, the podcast in 1787 about the constitutional oh, god i would have loved that podcast all of the all of the old stories i hear about the general assembly are just my favorite and maybe we should talk about them maybe we can do that next week because i'll tell you about that like would be fantastic tobacco stained carpet and all sorts of crazy things i hear but yeah. i bet it would be very entertaining oh, I'm, um, I'm down I'm, I'm down for that but go on i interrupted you i'm sorry <laughs> go ahead Well, so there is a fear that it could become, um, you know, a a runaway convention. There aren't a lot of established rules also about uh, how conventions would um, take place because, um, well, we haven't had them. So (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it's been 250 years. So there's like a confusion about who would be sent and who would pick who would be sent and how would they, you know, be governed and how would the final, you know, thing be written and all sorts of concerns so um obviously you know if one gets called all those things would be ironed out but the state of maryland is one of a few states who actually decided to withdraw all of their previous um calls for a constitutional convention in order to try to stop that from happening so um i think the constitutional convention amendment that uh is farthest along the uh, proposal for it is for the balanced budget amendment to the federal budget Um, Uh and that is six states shy of the 34 that it needs, um, to become a reality. Um, and so Maryland pulled out their, uh, balanced budget amendment, uh, constitutional call, constitutional convention call and Delaware and New Mexico have also, uh, pulled back their, uh, convention applications, but other states are passing, uh, convention resolutions, including Virginia, West Virginia, Oklahoma, Wyoming, and Arizona. And um, of the remaining states, uh, that the remaining 20 states that have not had uh, uh, an application for a constitutional convention for a balanced budget amendment, seven of those are, um, are controlled by Republicans. That'd be so great. That would be so great to have a cut. We'd all cover it, right? Oh yeah, I definitely con- would be yeah, there. We, 
We'd have to go. We'd have to road trip everybody. The entire newsroom would go. And, and would one be. thing that I did um, call out in, I can't remember, were you there? You weren't there. We did a wonderful podcast um, during election season with Walter Olson. He's from Frederick County. He um, is a fellow at the Cato Institute, and he just knows so much about state, national, and local politics. And um, he did an intelligence squared debate um, about calling for a constitutional amendment and a constitutional convention amendment. And if you want to know, like, literally every single thing that's possible to know about this issue, you can listen to that hour and 40-minute debate, and you'll learn a lot. Look it up. Look it up, everybody. Look it up. You'll do yourself good for that. So this is the last... This is the last full week that we're going to have. We're, you're going to come back to Frederick next week and we're going to do, we're going to kind of take a look at everything and sit in the same room and maybe eat some sushi. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was thinking we mm. should go back through and, and make a list of every bill we've talked about and then we can tell people and, how, the, how all of them worked. Including Bill Green. Yeah. The joke that nobody gets. Yeah, I did it. I did it again. So, Danielle, uh, what did you have to eat this week real quick? Um, oh, I went to Harry Brown's, uh, which is like a very famous like establishment bar uh, right next to the state house. It's where all the lawmakers and all the lobbyists go after after work at night. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So I went there. What did what did you get? I drank my dinner, Colin. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's perfect. It's fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. Um, <laughs> that's so good. Now, please, can you tell the people if they want to see pictures or if they want to read drunk tweets, where do they find you on Twitter? <laughs> so you can, um, I'm on Twitter at, at Danielle E. Gaines. And I think after this, I'm going to go up, I'm going to take a picture of the, of the beautiful slash creepy glass ceilings and I'll tweet out a photo. Good, good. Yeah. Well, I'll be... We'll be looking forward to that. We will also look forward to you coming back here to Frederick and be in the office. We have all missed you, of course. You should know that. People are talking about you all the time saying, where is Danielle? Where is Danielle? (laughs) Well, I'll be happy to be back. (laughs) Um, For now, though, uh, we're going to wait for Monday, Monday to happen. Yes. And... And we will we will catch up after then. But thank you so much for your time, Danielle. And of course, I hope this session ends in a grand fashion for you. I do, too. I do, too. I've covered this, uh, the General Assembly, two years now for the Frederick News Post. But I did one year a few years ago, and that was the only year uh, where there was no confetti, no balloons, no, you know, budget. It was all just very sad. So I hope that never happens Uh. again. We don't want sadness. <laughs> we want happiness. I'll That's bring you back a want. balloon, Colin. I'll bring you back a yes. balloon this year. And we'll, we can tweet that out. We'll take a picture of the balloon together and we'll tweet that out. All right. That'll be good. <laughs> I'll talk to you All right, next Danielle. week. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. Bye-bye. In Session is produced by Graham Cullen and Chris Sands. A special thanks goes to Kelsey Luce for composing our theme. Now be sure to hit subscribe on iTunes or Google Play so you can stay current with all the developments in Annapolis this session. Join us next week when we'll discuss the week that was in the General Assembly.